you have a Bible, you can open to 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. The, um, actually, it's not 7 through 11, it's 12 through 14. That reference is wrong. The text that's printed in the bulletin is correct. <clears throat> but um, 1 John 2, uh, 12 through 14. I've um, been going through 1 John for a little while, talking about assurance and uh, joy and just uh, knowing that we know God, which will... Uh, lift up our hearts and strengthen our hearts and uh, give us courage. And uh, the main thing that John's writing about through his whole letter, really, but uh, especially this morning in, in, this, in these few verses, um, the main thing he's trying to do here is actually boost our confidence. I don't know if uh, that sounds a little strange to you, but um, he's, trying to, he's trying to boost our confidence. And I don't mean uh, the kind of confidence, the way the world understands it, it's like linked uh, primarily to self-esteem. Um, We're talking about Christian confidence, confidence that comes from the gospel. It's not the same as self-esteem. The gospel is a historical reality. It's something that happened outside of you uh, once and for all a long time ago, uh, wrapped around the events and the person and the work of the life of Jesus Christ. Um, And so confidence in the gospel or Christian confidence is um, based on this historical reality. It's very very different from confidence in yourself. Uh, in your own abilities, capabilities, uh, potential, right? Uh, Having your confidence in something outside of you is very different from having your confidence in yourself or self-esteem. The world is broken because of our self-esteem, really, like our self-centeredness. All of our problems are either due to our self-reliance or compounded by our self-reliance. And the world's solution is what? It's it's more self-esteem, more self-reliance. That's that's all we've got. Uh, try to fix the world with uh, what we use to break it. But the gospel addresses us. The good news about Jesus Christ addresses us, whoever we are, wherever we are in life, and it gives us confidence to face all aspects of life, um, to face all seasons of life. And Christian confidence is a confidence that's grounded outside of ourselves and who God is, what he's done for us in the person of his son Christ by his grace, which means it's a confidence that can't be shaken. Nothing can touch it. Uh, it's a strength that's available to any believer to face anything at any time. And that's good news, and that's what we'll talk about this morning. That's the purpose driving John's assertions here in these few verses, uh, to give you Christian confidence. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we ask that you would help us as we consider your word. Would you Make it come alive to us and in us by your spirit who's at work, who uses your word. Would you transform us by it? Would you give us new hearts and renew our minds and connect us more deeply with yourself in relationship and make us more like Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
So I don't know if you've experienced this, if you read through 1 John. Um, I know it's, it's one of the favorites of uh, a lot of Christians, reading through 1 John. It's very encouraging. Um, but if you've read through it and you've come to these verses, it, it kind of gets confusing. It, it seems very simple on the face of it, but uh, why is he writing the way that he's writing? And what does it really mean? The, the precise meaning of these verses is actually pretty hard to nail down. Because uh, on top of John's sort of usual style, um, kind of spiritual writing, maybe it's enigmatic uh, writing style, these verses are clearly more poetic than usual, even for John. Um, and everyone knows you can't really understand poetry, right? Uh, there's just too much going on in poetry. Um, <clears throat> so good commentators list actually several ways of understanding what John is doing. Uh, he's addressing, he, he addresses children, fathers, and young men. Uh, who is he addressing with those? Uh, that's, that's a good question. Is he talking literally about three distinct age groups? Um, or is he speaking metaphorically about stages in Christian growth? development in Christian maturity? Or is he using children to refer to the whole church, and then he's got the two subgroups, the fathers and the young men, to refer to the just kind of young people and old people. They didn't really have a middle age in uh, the time when this was written. Uh, <clears throat> maybe like Stephen or Paul, when they address in the book of Acts, they address everybody fathers and brothers, right? Um, or is he not really addressing different subgroups, but everyone in the church, uh, using just different terms for them to uh, reflect the different encouragements that he's giving. Um, you know, it's John, and it's poetic, so the answer is probably just yes. It's these things. Um, <clears throat> but th there are probably uh, double or even triple meanings uh, to some of the words that we find here. So we're not going to be exhaustive as we go through the text. Uh, the way that we're going to look at it this morning is in light of the specific encouragements that he gives uh, to, um, to exhort them to Christian confidence and, uh, and how these encouragements then address kind of different significant aspects of our lives. So the three things that we'll talk about this morning, <clears throat> and um, these actually do really kind of jump out from the text, I think, as uh, three good points for us to think about, is confidence in the face of guilt first. Confidence in the face of guilt Confidence in the face of suffering, and then Christian confidence in the face of temptation. So guilt, suffering, and temptation, the confidence that we're supposed to find in the gospel to face these things. And one thing I'll mention about the terms that he's using, children and fathers and young men, is that they are uh, familial terms, and they're not meant to be gender exclusive, right? They're not meant to only single out the men in the church. He's using the inclusive masculine <clears throat> the way that uh, a lot of languages uh, do and have done. So, but he's addressing all the Christians in the church as members of God's family. That's the kind of language he's using. He's, he's being particularly encouraging to them because of the, the very difficult things that he's said up to this point, up to, the, up to these verses. Uh, he has pointed out uh, that you know, some, <clears throat> some professing Christians aren't really Christians at all. And he's had some hard words to say uh, to this point. And he's given a little bit of a hard definition so far as to what it means when you call yourself a Christian. And now he's giving true believers assurance. He's giving true believers confidence, uh, building them up in their faith to face their struggles. So the first that he's talking about is uh, confidence in the face of guilt. Let's, uh, you can see these in, in um, verses 12 and then 13c. 
So I've printed kind of A, B, and C in the bulletin for you so you can follow along easier. But uh, verse 12, I'm writing to you little children. This is kind of a term of endearment, right? Um, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And in 13c, I write to you children because you know the Father. Um, So here John's talking about the confidence that we have from the gospel that our sins are forgiven that we are restored to right relationship with God, that through Jesus Christ we know God as our Father and not as our enemy. Not only is our judge anymore, he's our Father. He's our loving Father. And uh, that is the greatest help to us when we have a strong sense of guilt, a strong sense of shame because of who we are and what we've done. Right? Um, it's, it's a common thing for uh, even Christians as they grow uh, to wrestle with assurance of whether or not they're really in the faith, whether or not they do know God as their father, because uh, Christians come to a deeper realization of our own sinfulness. The more we grow and the more uh, you look at yourself, uh, the worse things look, right? Uh, the, the more difficult it is to actually look at yourself. You have a deeper realization of your own sinfulness. You might expect that being a Christian and growing as a Christian means you just stop sinning, but you don't. You don't stop sinning. And in fact, you probably become uh, more frequently and more thoroughly aware of your sin. You'd probably do it more than you used to think that you uh, did. So uh, you discover that things are worse than you originally thought. Um, increased spiritual sensitivity, then, this kind of growth in God's grace, it often leads to a greater sense of guilt. Uh, greater sense of guilt. The world in its uh, recommendation of self-esteem, prescribes that you just forget about that guilt, right? Do away with it, Uh, your your guilt and shame. Just write it off however you can. Ignore it. Explain it away. Blame shift. Just try positive thinking. uh, Develop a worldview that allows you to pretend that there's no such thing as objective guilt or shame. Um, Anything, really, so as not to feel bad about yourself. Just ditch that baggage ditch the guilt. It's not good for you. It's not good for your self-esteem. Right? But the Bible says that our conscience is there for a reason. Uh, our conscience is there for a reason that there really are such things as objective guilt and shame because we really have messed things up between ourselves and God. You know? uh, we're not in right relationship with him by our nature, and we don't by nature do the things that belong to a good relationship, a healthy relationship with God. We've rebelled against him. We've not kept his law. We haven't even lived up to our own personal standards. Set aside God's perfect law. Um, You haven't even lived up to your own personal standards, right? Um, And the result of our rebellion, our sin against God, is real, objective, and felt guilt that needs to be addressed if we're going to be restored to a right relationship with God. And the gospel of Jesus Christ says that in spite of your real guilt, your sins are forgiven and your shame is covered and your relationship is restored, not because of who you are, but because of who Jesus is and what he's done for you at the cross. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, John says. For his name's sake. You didn't deserve to be forgiven your sins, right? Um, the guilty don't deserve forgiveness. That just wouldn't make any sense. Um, so you're not forgiven for your sake. You're forgiven for his name's sake. And that's a constant theme that you see running through all the scriptures, uh, that we're entirely at God's mercy for the forgiveness of our sins. Um, you see it all over the place in the Old Testament, a couple places in Isaiah where God says, 
in uh, chapter 43, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And then in Isaiah 48, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. And then the psalmists pray in uh, Psalm 79, help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Psalm 25, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. And then Ezekiel 20, you shall know that I am the Lord, God says, when I deal with you for my name's sake and not according to your evil ways. Uh, Or Jeremiah 14, the prayer, do not spurn us for your name's sake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. The promise stands that God will be a forgiving God, and the the prayers arise from God's people for your name's sake, for the sake of your faithfulness, for the sake of your promise. Do not spurn us. Do not destroy us, but have, have mercy on us. That is to say, God has revealed himself to us. He's given us his name. He's described his character and all of his attributes. He's described who he is, and his name represents all of that, right? And he's the God who forgives. He's the God who saves. You see that in uh, Matthew chapter 1 when the angel speaks to Joseph before uh, the birth of Jesus. And he says that Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins because the name Jesus means God saves. That's God's name. That's who God is. And in order for that to be the name of God, the name of God the Son in particular, in order for God's reputation to be true, for that to be a true name for him, that he is the forgiving God, God must be a God who forgives sins. Right? He must be a God who forgives sins, even though, by definition, those who sin don't deserve forgiveness. So Jesus lived a life of perfect communion with the Father in our place, as one of us, as one of us, but in our place, because our communion with God is broken. He lived that life for us, and he paid the penalty for our sins, suffering death in our place on the cross so that everyone who trusts in his mercy, everyone who trusts in the mercy of Christ and in the name of Jesus, who trusts in who he is and what he's done for us, everyone will be forgiven. The perfect son was cast out of the Father's presence so that uh, we could be accepted by the Father as his children welcomed into his house. And that's the source of your confidence. That is the source of your confidence. In the face of your guilt, your real guilt, your objective guilt, your felt guilt and shame, it doesn't depend on you. It doesn't matter how much guilt uh, you bear. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. God has forgiven your sins for his name's sake because he is the forgiving God. And now you know him as your father in a restored relationship. So you can be aware of your sin, you can feel that guilt and feel that shame, but you can have confidence that Jesus has dealt dealt with it once and for all in his body on the cross so that it no longer defines you, it no longer cuts you off from God, no longer is an obstacle in your relationship to God. This isn't a confidence that you need to work yourself up to, this is not something to be achieved um, after long years of striving to be holy. This is something that is absolutely true of every Christian. John's writing to children, 
right? Little children, which really must apply to every Christian, whatever, whatever stage of maturity you're in, this applies to you. If you've put your faith in Christ, your guilt has been taken away, you really do know God as your father. You really do have the same relationship with God that Jesus, the, the perfect son of God, himself enjoys, and that stands at the very beginning of your Christian life. And that's, uh, that's signified in the text. All of, uh, all of these encouragements are given to you. These verbs are in the uh, perfect tense, which means it's something that's been completed in the past that has a continuing significance, right? So when it says, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, that's something that happened long ago, and it stands now and forever. You really do know the Father. Uh, you really do now have the forgiveness of your sins. It's something that's happened once and for all. No matter how well you understand your own sin, no matter what degree of bad you feel about your sin, uh, no matter what good you might think you've done to outweigh your guilt, Jesus said long ago, once and for all, it is finished. Everything's been done to deal with your guilt. And that brings you a tremendous sense of freedom, uh, of joy, of lightheartedness, and that accompanies the, the, the full Christian confidence of knowing that all of your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. And that's much better than adopting the world's view of self-esteem for confidence. Right? Um, <clears throat> so secondly, confidence in the face of suffering. Uh, he uses the identical words <clears throat> probably for emphasis in 13a and 14a where he says, I'm writing to you or I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. You know him who is from the beginning. John may be addressing fathers as those who are older in years. Uh, he may be addressing those who are more mature Christians. But I think, uh, I think primarily he's actually addressing a recognizable facet of Christian maturity um, that can be recognized in father-like figures, right? And that because of the gospel, we actually all have the resources for this. We actually all have the spiritual resources to be the ones that God is addressing here uh, that it can be true of us, you know him who is from the beginning. He already wrote to the children that they know the Father, and that's what he repeats here in a sense, that you know him who is from the beginning. Uh, and there, when he wrote to the children that they know the Father, he's probably emphasizing the status of the relationship as reconciled. You really are brought back into this relationship. Um, here, he's probably emphasizing the nature of that relationship as personal and intimate and secure. Um, so how is it encouraging to us in the face of suffering especially that he is asserting repeatedly and simply you know him who is from the beginning he's declaring you really do know the eternal God at a personal level at a deep level of communion and that's the kind of encouragement you give to bolster someone who might be struggling with uh, doubt in the face of uh, difficult circumstances. It's common for us, when things are difficult in our lives, to question God's presence, God's care, God's love, God's provision for us, to question whether we really do have a relationship with him. Uh, it's easy for us to doubt the relationship when we believe that our circumstances demonstrate 
that God is absent. But it's easy for us to believe that our circumstances, our difficult spot in life, demonstrates that God doesn't care, or that God's angry with us, he's punishing us for something, or that God really isn't working all things together for our good. It's easier for us to believe that when we encounter suffering, uh, because our suffering, even though it's temporary, it often disturbs us uh, in overwhelming ways. It upsets us in overwhelming ways. And when that's true, the scriptures say that you have to cling, you have to cling to what you know about God, to what is not temporary, but eternal, to what will absolutely overwhelm all suffering in the end. Right. Um, I was reading just this morning uh, Psalm 102, and I'll read some verses from this. It's a prayer of one afflicted. Hear my prayer, O Lord, let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call, for my days pass away like smoke. and My bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I'm like a desert owl in the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. So not just your servants will dwell secure in who you are, because you are this eternal God, but the children of the servants and their offspring will dwell in security in the knowledge of you. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we don't lose heart. In the face of our suffering, we don't lose heart. Though our outer self, this body, is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So the older you get, I think, the, the easier this is, the more mature that you grow in your faith, the longer you walk with God in personal relationship through Jesus Christ, the more you get to know him as he's revealed in his word, the more you can relate to these passages. Right? The outer self is wasting away. I mean, that's just, we're just getting old and our bodies are falling apart, right? There's affliction all around us. We have enemies. There's suffering. But it's momentary. It's passing. God is eternal. God is my Father. God will never leave or forsake me. God is at work in everything for our good and for his glory. So the father-like quality that John is talking about here is this settled peace. It's this established security. It's a rooted and practiced and tested and refined 
sense of this deep, sustaining communion with God, the God who is from the beginning, who never changes. This is something you can be confident about, not because of your own ability to endure difficulty, not because of your own ability to endure suffering or just put aside your fears, but because you know him, who he is, what he's been doing, what he's promised to do. You know him. You can know for sure that the circumstances of your life do not testify to God's absence or to his anger at you or his lack of love toward you. The circumstances of your life don't testify to those things. You can know for sure that the circumstances, uh, whatever the specific reason for him allowing them in your life, they'll work together for your good. Ultimately, because you know the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ, you know that he is not working against you. He's working for you, even in the hard spots. It says in Romans 8, which is a beautiful chapter, but various verses here, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So what you see in God giving his own son for you is the full guarantee of his love. It's the full guarantee of his undying love that lasts through thick and thin. Because he gave his son for you. His is a love that arranges everything in your life for your eternal good. Because God is an eternal God. He's the God of eternal love. He's not just content to give you a happy, temporary set of circumstances in your life. He's fitting you for glory in heaven forever. That's his main goal in your life. Not to just give you a nice time now for this short time, but to fit you for eternal glory. And that's a painful process for us now. It's a violent process for us for now. But once we see it, once we see eternity, once we know the glory that he's preparing us for, we'll look back and say of all of our sufferings, whatever they were, that they were momentary, that they were light, that they were not worth comparing to this glory. And it's all because the eternal God loves you in an eternal way. And you know him. If you're a Christian, you know him. You truly know him. You know him in and through Jesus Christ. Jesus said about himself, if you'd known me, you would have known my father. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So you know him personally, you know him spiritually and intimately and securely in a way that gives you confidence to face any suffering, any distress, any persecution, any grief, any physical loss, even the decaying of your body with age and your eventual death. Because you know the eternal God who loves you in an eternal way and he's proven it to you by giving you his son. Third, John's writing to give us confidence in the face of temptation. It says in 13b, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then 14b, 
I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So uh, the Christian life is often likened to spiritual warfare, right? A battle. Uh, Young men are the types to be engaged in battle. Uh, So I think that's why he's addressing young men. Um, And as Christians, all of us are engaged in this battle. All of us have an enemy. And uh, our enemy is the evil one himself, the text says. He's our adversary. He's the one who tempts us. He's the one who deceives us. He's the one who accuses us when we have sinned. He, uh, he accuses us before God and says, look at these sinners. He accuses us to ourselves and says, look at yourself. Look how evil you are. You could never uh, receive God's grace. And I can't analyze uh, in every one of our temptations or sins. I can't analyze kind of a percentage of what is attributable to the devil. But you need to know this uh, because this is in a few places in the scriptures that someone personal someone powerful is working against you. You have an enemy, and he's the evil one. And as Christians, um, I think young men, again, literally are faced with many temptations and were exhorted uh, according to the scriptures. You see Paul exhort Timothy, 2 Timothy 2. He says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And then in Psalm 119, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. So obviously these, I think, are ideas and passages that don't just apply to young men, a particular age range, um, but really to anyone who's a Christian. And John's writing to give us the confidence we need as we seek to resist the devil and fight against sin and face the temptations uh, that are there. He's not saying... You know, you really have potential to do what's right. He's not saying, you can overcome the evil one if you try hard enough. He's saying, you have overcome the evil one. You have overcome him. Again, it's that perfect tense. It's uh, something that has already been accomplished with lasting effect. And I don't think he's just pointing out to previous battles that you have experienced. You know how this week you really fought that temptation and you didn't sin in that particular way and you beat the devil back in whatever way. He's not just pointing out to our, uh, pointing out our uh, previous battles, but to the decisive victory over evil and the devil himself that's true of every believer in Christ. He says, if the, he says, if the word of God abides in you, that's what he said, then if that's true, Jesus Christ himself abides in you. And you are strong with a strength that is not your own. It's not just your strength. It's his strength. The strength of the one who faced every temptation, but never sinned, never gave in to the temptation. Uh, The strength of him is yours because he is yours and you are his. The strength of the one who faced the devil himself victoriously, is yours because Jesus Christ is in you and you are in him. The strength of the one who rose from the dead, who conquered all evil and death itself, that strength is yours because the risen Lord Jesus lives in you and you live in him through his spirit. Jesus is seated on the throne in heaven. He has power over all of his enemies and his own strength is yours because of his grace, because of the spirit of God who unites you to him. 
the one who trusts in him, who trusts in Jesus, who knows him, who fixes the heart and mind on him, has all the resources he needs to overcome even the devil himself. Indeed, we have already overcome the devil through Jesus' own life, death, resurrection, and ascension. The good news says that in Christ, you are free from the power of sin. It has no hold on you anymore. You're free from the control of the evil one. And that's real. And it becomes tangible in your life as you apply the confidence of the gospel that it is real to your temptations, to your struggles with sin, to your battles with the enemy. So when you think, just to ground it in your real life a little bit, when you think about the temptations and the sins that you encounter frequently, anger, greed, lust for power, sexual lust, when you think about those temptations and sins that you face frequently, do you feel doubt and despair that you'll ever be free of them? Do you fear that these things define you? They're so overwhelming, they're so constant, that they define you, that they constitute your identity? Do you fear that? Do you feel demoralized and exhausted from the long siege of temptation, the the drawn-out battle with sin? Do you feel exhausted by that? Or do you look at temptations and sins and even the devil himself as a conqueror looks in triumph over his trampled foe? Is that how you look at it? So we watched... um, the Lord of the Rings trilogy again this week. It's a pretty regular thing at our household. Uh, One of my favorite scenes is when Gandalf the White, not the gray anymore, uh, Gandalf the White comes back from the dead. He's united with his companions who thought he was dead. Uh, He recounts the battle that he had with the ancient demon, this very powerful enemy. He recounts the battle. It was a battle that claimed his life. And uh, he had given up his life for his friends. But in that battle, he overcame the enemy. And he said this, I fell through fire and water. From the lowest dungeon to the highest peak, I fought him, the Balrog of Morgoth, until at last I threw down my enemy and smote his ruin upon the mountainside. And when you're watching that, you're just like, yes! right? It's inspiring. It's dramatic. Uh, We have something better in the gospel. Uh, We have, in Revelation 12, a great battle in heaven against the enemy, who is the dragon, the serpent, the devil himself. And it says, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. So Jesus Christ, who is the true king, he has thrown down his ancient enemy and smote his ruin upon the mountainside. 
the side of the hill on Golgotha, when he resisted temptation and sin, even to the point of his own death on the cross. And his victory, his victory over the devil is yours. You have conquered the dragon, it says, by the blood of the lamb, not by your own strength, but by the blood of the lamb and by the word of your testimony, by the word of the gospel, the word that you hold to by faith. That's your strength in the fight. We sing pretty frequently Martin Luther's song, A Mighty Fortress. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him, that word above all earthly powers. So by the grace of God, we have gospel confidence, we have Christian confidence, even in the face of our enemy, who's stronger than us. In the face of temptation, we have confidence that enables us to look at sin and the devil as a defeated foe. He's already defeated. We have a deep, settled, joyful confidence that belongs to you because of Jesus Christ, because of his person and his work, because of the gospel. And with that confidence, you can face guilt, knowing that your sins are forgiven, knowing that God is your Father. You can face suffering, knowing that the eternal God loves you in an eternal way. And you can face temptation, knowing that in Christ you've already conquered the enemy. And this is true for you only in Jesus Christ only because of the gospel, the good news about him. So put your trust in Christ and live with Christian confidence that sustains you in the face of all things. Amen. Let's pray. Father, would you make Christ and the good news of his grace, his person and work on our behalf, would you make him more real to our minds and our hearts so that we would be uplifted by the good news about him, that we would be granted strength to live for you in this world, that we'd be granted confidence to face everything that life has in store for us. Secure in our relationship with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.